Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 51st episode of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, a podcast all about the subject of antinatalism created by antinatalists. My name is Amanda Oldfansukanik, formerly known as Feverwolf Films on YouTube, and today I'm speaking with academic researcher and marketing practitioner, editor of the International Journal of Marketing Semiotics, as well as many other publications, including his 2019 paper, on the discursive appropriation of the antinatalist ideology in social media, George Rosaletos. Uh, welcome to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, Mr. Rosaletos. Uh, it's a pleasure to have yeah, you here hello, today. Amanda. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I've watched many episodes and I think you're oh, doing really? a fantastic job in uh, promoting um, uh, an ideology that definitely has taken root and has garnered uh, quite a sizable followership. Yeah. So uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, what you're doing is uh, definitely of value, uh, both to researchers as well as to potential members of your community. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That really means a lot to me. That, thank you so much for watching uh, other episodes. That's 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 so awesome. Um, may I call you George uh, for this? Sure. Episode? Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Too. Okay, excellent. All right. Well, welcome again. Thank you so much. Um, I'm delighted to speak with you today. I, I have a very clear memory of when the original version of your paper on antinatalism was first released. And I've honestly wanted to talk to you um, ever since that time, uh, but I wasn't doing a show a show yet. Um, you're quite a prolific individual, uh, lots of fantastic work around a lot of interesting subjects. Um, and I, so I was just wondering if we could start out by you telling me a little bit about yourself, you know, who is George Rosaletos and uh, just a little bit of about all your areas of research. Sure. Um, uh, as you said in the beginning, I'm a marketing practitioner, uh, a branding consultant, uh, as well as an academic researcher. Uh, at this point, I'm a postdoctoral researcher and invited lecturer. I'm lecturer on issues of branding, brand communications, uh, cultural consumer research, and new media. These are my three fields of expertise. And uh, the paper on natalism that you read was initially published in, uh, in, called, in the Qualitative Report. Um, it's a journal, it's Qualitative uh, Research Journal across disciplines. And it was uh, republished uh, in, uh, in revised form uh, in my monograph that's called Interdiscursive Readings in Cultural Consumer Research that was published by uh, Cambridge Scholar Publishing in uh, 2018. Uh, the difference between the two pieces, apart from uh, some uh, minor revisions in the actual text consists in, um, um, in, in an appendix uh, where I'm trying to dimensionalize the phenomenon of, of antinatalism uh, within the context of what I call meta-meta-narratives. Uh, what is a meta-meta-narrative? Well, as the term suggests, it's something that comes after meta-narratives. So let's uh, define what is a meta-narrative. The original definition uh, that was uh, furnished by uh, Jean-François Lyotard uh, in his uh, famous or infamous, infamous for some uh, book, The Postmodern Condition, which he started um, at least officially the postmodern movement, regardless, of course, of any uh, precedence in uh, different artistic movements such as surrealism and dadaism and so on and so forth, uh, was the fact that um, Jean-François Lyotard envisioned uh, a shift away from uh, totalizing discourses, that is, uh, grand uh, narratives uh, in the vein of traditional philosophical systems, as well as theological doctrines, 
which have been dominating Western thinking up through that point. And the way out as an exit of uh, this meta-narrative regime, let, um, let it be called, um, regime, uh, was to legitimate other forms of discourse, uh, such as those uh, that pertain to art and that have an artistic underpinning, rather than those that um, take their lead from um, um, rational argumentation or philosophical systematic thinking uh, as known to us up until now. Uh, so the exit from the um, state of meta-narratives uh, was uh, a liberation of uh, human expressive forms, uh, as well as a liberation of art as, a, a, say, um, a side dish of traditional philosophical theorizing. Um, of course, down the line, uh, as it turned out, this has been um, used by certain social forces uh, or interest groups uh, in a sense for uh, liquidating uh, at the beginning and uh, let's say during the first phase um, existing uh, notions and perceptions about what constitutes legitimate thinking in order to reinstate systems, totalizing systems that had been superseded even before the advent of, advent of postmodernity, that is uh, at the stage where modernity in the 18th century tried to uh, release humanity from the yoke of religious doctrine. And we're talking about religious doctrine here quite emphatically, because uh, at the very bottom of the social forces, at least to my understanding and to my cultural perception, uh, these are the very dominant forces that have been um, parasitically feeding uh, on uh, this destabilization that was brought about by, uh, by postmodernity. Of course, that had, that had nothing to do with the original definition of Lyotard, but this is a, a typical case of how different uh, power groups and uh, different dominant structures appropriate uh, ideologies to their own ends in order to legitimate uh, their own uh, agendas. And of course, in a matter that has nothing to do with uh, the original um, um, uh, intention of uh, the authors that uh, put forward either philosophical um, systems or artistic manifestos uh, or uh, other forms of thinking uh, to this end. So the meta-meta narrative is a predicament uh, where we experience uh, the comeback of uh, big grand thinking uh, uh, in the style of uh, Immanuel Kant's, uh, you know, first critique or Hegel's um, uh, logic or uh, phenomenology of spirit, where they're trying to encapsulate the entire uh, meaning of uh, being human and what it means to know and what it means to, to feel and to think. Uh, that is the, you know, the first critique of Kant, that was the epistemological, um, epistemological work that was uh, succeeded by his practical philosophy, and then the critique of judgment by this aesthetic philosophy. So, uh, but these were all couched in totalizing terms, uh, which is very definitive and very um, um, of, of major philosophical systems. That is a set of major and minor premises, which self-referentially, constitute uh, a closed uh, totality uh, wherein the meaning uh, or the entire meaning of existence is supposed to be 
conveyed. And the same holds, of course, for religious doctrine, which is in, in more uh, parabolic terms and in more allegorical and metaphorical terms, without, of course, implying that philosophical systems, as David has simply demonstrated, are not also predicated of uh, rhetorical tropes. Uh, this, um, this has been uh, amply um, uh, scrutinized ever since the uh, Derrida's um, uh, pinpointing uh, of the uh, of dominant metaphors and dominant uh, themes that have been permeating uh, Western philosophy ever since its inception, uh, its inception with the uh, Presocratics and onwards and up until Heidegger. So um, yes, this uh, um, uh, totalizing form of thinking and in an attempt to answer fundamental questions about human existence to my understanding uh, has been revived with Benator's uh, anti-natalist philosophy. Fascinating. Thank you so much for all of that. Actually, that, that whole explanation helps me uh, already just understand your paper so much, uh, so much clearer, uh, and and your intentions. Um, you'll have to forgive my ignorance. Um, the the term semiotics was not a term that I was familiar with before I read your paper. Um, can you tell me a little bit about just in general what semiotics mean and how um, was your paper uh, a a study of um, of antinatalism through semiotics, or is that a bit uh, uh, tangential to what to what uh, the intention uh, actually was. in in this paper i'm not following a semiotic analytical route i'm following a discourse analytic route and more specifically i'm applying uh ruth kodak's discourse historical analytical perspective uh in the analysis of the empirical data that have been uh, sourced from uh, the anti-lentalism facebook community uh so it's not semiotic per se it's discourse analytic. These are two sister disciplines in many respects. And for the sake of, um, um, you know, outlining some uh, similarities in terms of their historical evolution, um, they're in um, major perspectives in discourse analysis, such as Ferklaus CDA critical discourse analysis uh, is drawing amply on holiday systemic functional linguistics, which is also the main source behind social semiotics. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, social semiotics have been gravely influenced by Helmslev's uh, semiotic perspective, the famous Danish semiotician who drew a distinction between, in terms of mini generation between uh, forms of expression and the matter of expression in a, in a, in a, in a fourfold four um, theoretical perspective and between uh, the form of, um, Helmslev was a major inspiration between Kramas uh, who uh, marked a radical departure from traditional French Saussurian sign-based uh, semiotics. So there are, you know, um, common parts between discourse, uh, uh, discourse analytic perspectives and semiotic perspectives. Uh, at the same time, Ruth Kodak, for example, historical discourse analytic perspective um, draws on uh, Parisian semiotics, uh, which is a major part, and uh, other, you know, methodological and conceptual cross-pollinations uh, which I will be um, laying out quite explicitly and vividly in the introduction uh, to uh, a forthcoming collective volume that is called uh, Advances in uh, 
marketing in, in uh, um, brand semiotics and discourse analysis that is um, due to be published by Vernon Press uh, this year. Amazing. So, Congratulations on that. That's excellent. So uh, hopefully uh, in a few months time, uh, by the end of the year, uh, you'll have the opportunity uh, and I will alert you uh, as soon as it's available to uh, identify, you know, the various respects and ways uh, whereby these two disciplines, uh, grosso modo, uh, intersperse, uh, both conceptually and in terms of methodological outlets. Fantastic. So, uh, pursuant to this, um, let's say, introductory parenthetical uh, explanatory detour, let me return to an attempt on uh, addressing your original question. Uh, that is, uh, my paper is drawing on critical discourse analysis uh, in order to identify uh, primarily what sort of discursive strategies are used by members of the anti-analyst movement in, uh, while negotiating the basic tenets of the uh, original philosophy, uh, as well as uh, what kind of uh, interaction patterns are formed online uh, in, uh, in the formation of collective identity against the background of the main tenets of nationalism uh, as an ideological, uh, as an ideology and philosophical system, um, as well as what kind of dominant tropes, rhetorically speaking, uh, are evinced uh, uh, while trying again to appropriate, to make one's own uh, an ideology that is quite abstract and bring it to one's own measure. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for that. Um, I, I can't wait to get into depth talking about the, the paper. Before we get to that, two, two other quick questions. Um, I'd love to ask you, George, why are you or are you not an antinatalist? Um, well, definitely not um, an antinatalist um, as it goes the ism part, but I, I can definitely uh, at the same time uh, sympathize with the drivers and the antecedents that may cause someone to become an antinatalism, uh, which of course are uh, definitely uh, all around us, especially during the uh, um, past two years, uh, and, you know, with, uh, and the COVID phenomenon. Uh, I'm sure that this public sentiment uh, will become and is due to become uh, more widespread. Uh, however, um, from, um, let's say, philosophical point of view, I wouldn't be inclined to endorse uh, antinatalism uh, for, for the, first of all, because I'm not particularly attracted to any isms. Uh, I'm much more, uh, let's say, um, um, inclined uh, to adopt a critical perspective or a postmodernist or a deconstructive attitude towards sociocultural phenomena rather than uncritically endorse isms, especially uh, due to the fact that uh, the, such meta-narratives by now uh, should have evaporated rather than you know, making a, um, a comeback, uh, especially as, um, in as in as entrenched fashion as they're put occasionally forward by their originators. So uh, in principle, I'm not an antinatalist. However, I can definitely uh, sympathize with antinatalists as regards uh, some aspects uh, of the philosophical movement. 
Oh, completely fair. Okay, thank you so much for your answer uh, on that. Um, how did you originally become interested, uh, though, in the subject of antinatalism? And I'm also curious, when did you originally engage uh, with Benatar's work for the first time? Mm -hmm. um, I was particularly drawn, uh, well, first of all, due to my uh, int broader interest that's called cultural consumer research, uh, I'm always trying to identify innovative subjects or under research subjects, uh, which I can potentially uh, explore and expand or initiate. Uh, I, for example, I wrote the first semiotical inclined paper on uh, the ice bucket challenge. The ice bucket challenge. Yes, that was one of the um, first paper, well, actually the very first paper that was written uh, in terms of uh, viral communications and the notion of virality and, and what this means culturally, the, uh, given the, the fact that so many prominent cultural intermediaries were involved in this phenomenon from famous actors to politicians, what this means for the cultural order, uh, especially given that uh, it, is, um, um, it is something that is passed along uh, um, below the radar of verbal reasoning. Uh, so it's a purely, you know, viral phenomenon that takes place at an embodied level. And this is definitely something that triggered my uh, um, research, researcher interest. And uh, I was particularly proud because it's one of my most cited papers as well. So uh, apart from that, you know, I've written on various topics, for example, what is the meaning of uh, seduction, a semiotic account of seduction uh, by expanding Baudrillard's account uh, from his book on seduction. Uh, I recently wrote uh, two papers, one paper and one chapter about mass shootings, where I'm, I'm putting forward a, pers a perspective uh, where, again, I'm tracing the origins of mass shooting, uh, the phenomenon of mass shootings to, uh, to a very fundamental yet absent conditional of communitarian organizing. Uh, that, that's it's what I call the will to be traumatized, uh, drawing on theories of collective traumatism and other psychoanalytic concepts. I'm also putting forward some new concepts, uh, for example, something about Ipsady, which I can only remember right now, <laughs> far too many concepts. And uh, in order to explain the phenomenon of mass shooting beyond the Cognitivist, you know, the stringent and very strict boundaries of cognitivist or psychological and even more so psychiatric explanations, so to speak. So um, that was another aspect that, um, uh, of, the, of mass shootings that uh, drove my attention to this prominent, uh, most unfortunate, but at the same time, what I'm calling it's a, a phenomenon of. Uh, necessary violence, it's a, what Derrida calls transcendental violence. It's a necessary uh, phenomenon for sustaining a community as such. And of course, for uh, repeating, uh, um, it's an act that must be repeated in order for a community to be sustained as such. And it's something from a Christological point of view, Girard's Christological point of view, that has direct lineage with uh, the figure of uh, Christ uh, as regards the sacrificial victim uh, upon whose death a community is edified. And uh, again, in another chapter on the same topic, uh, I'm expanding the um, murderous uh, as well as cannibalistic fundamentals of Christianity, uh, rather than ag agapitic religion. 
that's another part uh, and another topic that I researched recently. Uh, another another topic was uh, vibrators. Again, I've never used a vibrator, but it's as a ubiquitous and uh, uh, high penetration phenomenon. Uh, well, in terms of population penetration, of course, uh, I've read that around sixty percent of uh, women uh, um, actually answered uh, in a survey that they have used at least once a vibrator in their lives. So, from marketeer, you know, this just triggered my imagination and my research interest, saying that if you know there's such high penetration rate, how come there's no you know established research field you know for for this category? And what I found uh, by looking at the promotional texts of vibrators, which was again by adopting a discourse on a lead point of view, which was uh, my primary uh, field of interest, was that while Foucault was calling uh, the technologies of self and how techno scientific regimes uh, attain to uh, encapsulate. Uh, even fundamental uh, instincts and even fundamental ways uh, of um, reproducing uh, such as the such as intercourse, uh, especially in in a posthumanist predicament, uh, is one hundred percent reflected in the promotional text of this particular product category, which I think is a fantastic finding. And you know you can modulate the vibrator, you know. Uh, in the same manner as you can fly an airplane in order to attain different levels of pleasure, which again is the imposition uh, of a techno-scientific regime uh, in, a, in a field that was uh, considered either taboo or inscrutable or invested with theolo theological connotations, for example, you know, the inscrutability or the mystery of reproduction. You know, this is uh, um, a very remarkable uh, way of how humanist predicament has demystified uh, what used to be con uh, considered as uh, an avaton uh, that is, you know, something that uh, you're not um, meant to transgress or gain knowledge into its secret machinations. So from a cultural, you know, cultural point of view and a cultural elite point of view, all these topics, including anti-natalism, of course, um, are of massive interest. And uh, they're of massive interest, and especially with anti-natalism, uh, I think that uh, there's there are even more uh, important reasons uh, for why one should be uh, driven at least uh, out of curiosity to scrutinize his fundamental tenets. Is that we live, you know, in a, in an era where, uh, as Bernardo rightly said, suffering is the, definitely all around us in perhaps more um, penetrating ways than it has been in other eras. And of course, the uh, ubiquity of mass media and the accessibility to mass media um, everywhere and uh, at any point is has definitely contributed to uh, the catapulting of you know suffering into a mainstream theme. Uh, so you know, it's there's always a way of transforming an objective fact into a commonplace rhetorically through the images that are made through the media. Uh, but uh, in, in any case, uh, uh, it's of great interest, uh, even more of greater interest, to scrutinize how in a philosophical system, I don't think it's a philosophical system, but let's call it a philosophical system to begin with, we can come back to this later, is transformed into an ideology that is a set of fuzzy schemata, and third, uh, the third point of transformation, how this ideology is a set of five schemata 
gives rise to, through appropriation to uh, um, empirical instantiations and appropriations, which is how ideology works. It needs subjects in order to gain root, and subjects need an ideology in order to justify uh, aspects of their existence uh, which they cannot, uh, um, to which they cannot provide answers in other in, in different manners. So let's say it's this tripartite process uh, that drove me particularly to antinatalism, because uh, in a post-meta-narrative or wannabe post-meta-narrative regime, one would not expect uh, to come across, uh, you know, uh, uh, an entire philosophical system that uh, inspires uh, an ideological, uh, an ideology and a social movement. That's why I'm uh, drawing parallels with the Communist Manifesto, because at least to uh, my knowledge, that was the last, uh, you know, piece of philosophical writing that inspired an ideology which was transformed into a social, socio-political movement. So, given the, you know, the time, uh, the time, different, the, the time lag. Uh, between uh, the Communist Manifesto and the uh, Anti-Natalist Manifesto, uh, it's uh, um, it's a fantastic opportunity to explore uh, this tripartite process, and even more so in a predicament where nowadays we have the opportunity to actually explore, thanks to social media, how an ideology um, becomes part of. Um, uh, subjects' uh, ordinary existence through interaction by observing uh, the interaction in situ, which is something that we didn't have the opportunity as social scientists to do uh, in different eras, for example, back uh, back in the time of the uh, October Revolution, uh, there were no means, you know, like uh, cameras or uh, drones that could possibly, uh, you know, take actual footage of everyone who's participating in, in a demonstration or the dialogues that are enacted between them. This kind of uh, opportunity we have in the context of social media. So it's uh, one more reason uh, why uh, this is a very uh, interesting phenomenon that merits excessive scrutiny. Amazing, thank you so much for all. What a fascinating road into this subject. I mean, um... Let me ask this, and, and, and I, I fully admit perhaps I'm misunderstanding, but are, is what you're saying basically that, um, you know, a, a philosophical text then becoming an ideology, which I will talk more about later, I, I believe it's a, a bit debatable whether antinatalism is an ideology, but um, you're, you're saying that that's a bit of an anachronism, that that's like something that shouldn't be happening basically anymore due to social changes. Is, is that sort of what, what you're saying? Well, I'm saying it's something that is not would not be expected to be happening. I see. Yeah. Uh, because um, grand philosophical systems have given uh, largely their place to what is called lifestyle ideologies, as I'm describing in the preamble to to my uh, paper on antinatalism. For example, veganism, you know, slow food movement, or Occupy Wall Street, especially so, you know, uh, um, more. Uh, lifestyle-oriented uh, ideologies or more ephemeral ideologies which tend to, which have a very uh, quick learning curve and, uh, um, you know, the burnout quite, quite, uh, quite um, pretty quickly. Uh, 
So uh, within this predicament, post-ideological predicament, so to speak, I wouldn't expect uh, a full-fledged philosophical system to emerge uh, that is uh, laying claim to providing the ultimate truth about human existence, which was the uh, mode of writing and the mission and the objective of uh, meta-narratives from other eras. So, and again, it's an exception. Um, you know, I haven't, at least to my knowledge, and of course it's, uh, it's constrained, and of course I'm a finite being, there might be other meta-narratives out there of which I'm not aware. And uh, I would really, uh, you know, love it if people actually drop me an email and say, you know, you might as well, you know, look, in, look into this meta-narrative as well. Uh, I'd be really glad to do so. But again, to my notes, uh, I haven't come across any other full-fledged philosophical perspective, uh, contemporary, that's uh, laying claim, you know, to providing the answer about the, about human existence. Amazing, yeah, no, no. Um, I also thought that what you know, I read your paper a number of times, and it, that is a, one of the questions that most came to mind. Is like, well, is there anything else like this basically happening? Um, no, a, a amazing theory, uh, really a fascinating theory. I really think you are the first to kind of theorize in this way about antinatalism. Um, so I, I'd love to you know, begin our, our, our more proper discussion of the paper itself. Um, I've got a bit of a preamble just for the, some of this you've already said, but for the benefit of, uh, of those listening that perhaps haven't read the paper. So on Halloween, October 31st, 2017, you released a work that if I'm not mistaken was the, as you said, though, uh, as you did clarify earlier, was the first iteration of the paper that would later become on the discursive appropriation of the antinatalist ideology in social media. And that paper uh, was called Consuming Antinatalism in Social Media, a a Discourse Historical Analytic Approach. This paper is a study of what was uh, then and still to the best of my knowledge is the largest antinatalist Facebook group in English. There are in fact several uh, much, much larger uh, antinatalist Facebook uh, groups in other parts of the world. There's a very, very large uh, Facebook group entirely in Arabic. There's another one that's entirely in Portuguese that has over 100,000 members. By comparison, actually, this Facebook group is quite small. Um, This group was originally created on September 7th, 2007. The group is an incredible 14 years old now. Um, At the time of writing uh, your paper, you quoted the membership of the group to be 5,000 members. Today, it has actually doubled that number uh, to 10,000, which is really quite incredible over just a couple of years. Um, What originally led you to studying the the antinatalist Facebook uh, this antinatalist Facebook community specifically. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, there are many, many other, uh, even besides the ones uh, in other languages, many, many other ones in English. And there's also many communities um, across many other platforms uh, for antinatalism, uh, like Reddit, YouTube. Um, so why Facebook specifically? Well, on the other hand, um, YouTube is the only medium where actual interaction takes place among members of communities, uh, which is not the case with YouTube, which tends to be um, you know, a string of monological comments. So we don't have the opportunity to examine as a new media researcher, the interaction patterns that take place, uh, the interaction patterns between members. Uh, this um, as regards the platform, the choice of platform. As regards the choice of community within that platform, at least to my knowledge, back when you know originally composed this paper, there was the largest community in Facebook, 
English-speaking community and uh, with global membership as well, uh, uh, at least based on my research. So it was a matter of numbers. And as you uh, very well uh, put it uh, in your uh, introduction uh, to, uh, to this community, it's, it's the uh, one with the greatest longevity. It was uh, established in 2007, which means that um, there was a maturity, you know, yeah, as I perceive it, uh, 11 years down the line, uh, the, you know, the community had been um, endowed with a sense of maturity as regards the way they're tackling uh, the philosophical and the ideological aspects of Bernardo's uh, system, uh, which of course was identified by pinpointing specific members who are long-term members and try to see to what extent their comments, the, the corner of the comments had, you know, I've gone through changes uh, between the years, uh, for example, and I was particularly, you know, impressed, uh, you know, to find that uh, against my, well, let's say, um, original background assumptions that uh, some of these members, they were very uh, knowledgeable of the uh, actual philosophical argumentation of Benadar, rather than regurgitating in a, a decontextualized ideological fashion uh, some of the premises that are contained therein. So, you know, all these aspects are very important, you know, for um, uh, forming uh, a well-rounded uh, perspective about how the uh, original philosophical perspective uh, transmogrifies into an ideology, and then how this ideologically fuels and is inscribed in actual behavior uh, that is uh, that deploys in situ. Okay, thank you. It's a fascinating comment that you made about YouTube um, specifically because, so I first came to this community in 2010 and I came to it through YouTube. And mm -hmm. at the time, YouTube was structured in a way that really allowed um, people to communicate with each other in a way that's really kind of non-existent um, now on YouTube where you could make you know response videos back and forth to each other and they would be mm -hmm. attached underneath the video. And um, there was a real debate culture and there was a real sort of more interpersonal uh, kind of world that was created. Um, but all of that has been wiped away. You know, so many of those videos are gone. So I, I, I wonder if like, you know, if we could go back in time, I do believe you, you could probably do a similar study of the community at that time. Um, but it's so, um, it's so, it was so fragile. Um, I, I said this a little bit before, but I do think it really does deserve to be pointed out that this paper was, as far as I know, one of the earliest, if not the earliest examples of somebody actually taking the time to do an academic study of the antinatalist community. There have been yes. a, few, a few since. Um, there's the work of Faith L. Brown. I'm not sure if you got a chance to listen to her episode on the podcast. She does some incredible, uh, incredibly fascinating work. Um, but I, I really do think you might be the first. So congratulations on that. Um, it's, it's a it, was really definitely, it was definitely the first one. Uh, yeah, uh, because I, uh, um, I researched the you know the entire academic um, different databases and there was no uh, account of the actual Facebook community or any in other social medium until then. So um, I'm you know I'm really glad that uh, I did this at, at that point and it has been cited. 
quite extensive labor scenes by uh, scholars who have been uh, interested in, uh, you know, how ideologies um, form in new media. Uh, but I, I, again, I think there's a massive potential going forward for extending both um, the focus of this research as well as the uh, different social media. As you rightly said, uh, were anarcho-nationalism is kind of the major topic of discussion. I, I think so too. I think there's huge, huge, huge areas uh, sure. to, to move forward um, with with all of this. Can can you tell me a little bit about the, the kind of papers that it's been cited in, or how how it's been used since its publication? Um, not on top of my head because that's okay. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't looked at it for quite some time. I tend to um, cite. Uh, different research pieces that have cited my work uh, uh, on a page in my blog, uh, Disruptive Semiotics. Okay. Uh, but I haven't uh, renewed it for, for a while because I've been quite busy with, uh, you know, my forthcoming uh, book, uh, the one I'm editing. So uh, that has been consuming, you know, quite, quite a, a lot of my time lately. Right, of course, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, I, once again, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very grateful that you, you, you jumped in and, and, and started this whole, you know, inquiry into sort of what, what's going on in these groups. Um, I mean, you, you have answered this a bit, a bit already, but I mean, how, how did all of this, how did your work start with this research? Right? What was sort of the first steps? In, did you communicate directly with people in the community? Were you, um, you know, did you make yourself known within the community that you were doing this work? Did you talk to the moderators uh, with information or did you, were you really sort of a silent observer? Um, I've been very curious about that. Hmm. Well, as I'm uh, explaining my paper in the methodology section, I adopted a nanographic, nanographic uh, approach, which is um, the marketing research equivalent of digital ethnography um, that is uh, well known in uh, digital anthropological circles. Uh, I adopted a non-participant observation uh, route, that is, I did not uh, interact directly with the members. Uh, I just observed uh, as a you know impartial, impartial and uh, let's say non-visible um, participant, uh, the actual interactions and the content, and uh, this is why I didn't want to take any. Uh, I didn't want to infuse any bias by uh, taking any positions, which is a, a methodological principle, you know, of ethnographic principle for conducting non-participant observation, either in physical settings or in online settings. So I try to be as, you know, impartially present as possible in order not to infuse any bias in the data. Okay, excellent. Um, if it's all right with you, may I read the abstract from the paper? Okay. Definitely, yes. Okay, wonderful. Uh, Antinatalism, a relatively recent moral philosophical perspective and ideology that avows it is better never to have existed, has spawned a social movement with an, a, an active presence in social media. This study draws on the, on the discourse historical approach, DHA, to, uh, to critical discourse analysis for offering a firm understanding as to how the collective identity of the Facebook antinatalist NSM, which is new social movement, is formed. Um, the findings from the analysis of the situated interactions among the N 
SM's members demonstrate that collective identity is far from a nitty gritty concept, but a dynamic schema that includes a plethora of micro interactions. Individuals constantly negotiate its meaning in context as they seek to streamline the antenatalist system of ideas with their life world through a web of interlocking schemata, uh, discursive and rhetorical strategies. Um, so first off, may, may I ask for the sake of our, our viewers who have not read the paper, can you go into a little bit more depth about what exactly the discourse historical approach is? Um, and could you perhaps go into a bit more detail about how it's how exactly it was applied to the study and how it was used to collect data? Mm -hmm. uh, the discourse historical approach is a discourse analytic perspective that was coined by uh, Ruth Vorak and Martin Reisigl. They're two um, uh, well-known discourse, anal uh, discourse analytic researchers and authors. And uh, the basic principles are that uh, you adopt a historical perspective uh, when scrutinizing a social cultural phenomenon, meaning that you're trying to not just uh, analyze uh, the data uh, as they're presently um, uh, involved in the interaction of participants, but you're trying to, uh, uh, to introduce um, a historical evolution of a movement in order to contextualize it uh, uh, as neatly as possible within a broader socio-cultural socio framework. And this is what I try to do by uh, embedding uh, the uh, antinatalist movement within the uh, rationale of meta-narratives and what I term as meta-meta-narrative. I try to um, um, place this, uh, um, this ideology and philosophical um, system uh, within a broader socio-cultural predicament and what it means nowadays uh, uh, for uh, for people to be uh, involved within a, a philosophical movement and an ideology that springs from it. Uh, the second uh, part of that is uh, definitive of DHA uh, is uh, close atten atten attentiveness to uh, situated interaction among participants, how the actual dialogues take place, what kind of uh, lexicogrammatical uh, resources are mobilized and used by its participants while interacting, uh, for example, and especially as regards the rhetorical aspects, for example, uh, what, what kind of metaphors they're using, uh, what, what other tropes they're using, visual and verbal. And the third part uh, consists of uh, trying to identify discourse strategies that are used when uh, framing and, and, and tackling uh, social cultural phenomenon. That is, uh, uh, what kind of permeating uh, um, modes of uh, thinking the uh, participants mobilize in order to make sense of their predicament. And this is why uh, in the five uh, discourse strategies that are identified uh, by um, course referring to other discourse analytic studies, such as um, the discourse strategy of appropriation, changing the subject, uh, of um, um, yes, this this sort of discourse strategies they're quite ubiquitous in how the members try to make sense of this philosophy and adapt it to their own. And this is my cat's tail. <laughs> so <laughs> sweet. And oh, hello. The actual, and here's the actual cat. <laughs> Say hello. Hello, sweetheart. Oh, what a beautiful kitty. <laughs> Um, appropriation, for example, uh, 
uh, it's a discourse strategy that was originally uh, coined by Fairplow in 1995, and it designates individual attempts to own the ideology, that is to appropriate it within the phenomenological reality of one's own life world by appealing to individual life experiences. This is uh, one of the key strategies that are employed, uh, uh, at least according to my analysis, by the members of the uh, analyst movement. Uh, in an attempt, for example, you know, they, they were referring to their cousins, to their siblings, to their sons, to mothers, daughters, blah, 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 what kind of operations they went through, uh, what kind of unfortunate events they had been experienced which drove them to, uh, you know, become... Um, uh, attracted to the anti-nationalism movement. So again, this is a way of uh, trying to uh, pinpoint all these different uh, transformations and transmogrifications take place between the three strata, philosophical movement, ideology, and empirical reality. How uh, these you know, three uh, aspects uh, interrelated, interrelate and how one is transformed to another. Uh, this, the discursive strategy uh, let's say the nodal point that links ideology and empirical reality. Uh, another prominent strategy that uh, was found to be uh, amply operative in this community uh, was a change of subject that was uh, defined by Hanson in 2015 uh, to be realized mainly in two ways, via topic control or by manipulative strategy of making use of recipients' vulnerabilities uh, people tend to shift between subjects. Uh, for example, while talking about abortion, uh, you know, they uh, tend to jump onto some other uh, equally, let's say, um, sensitive phenomenon that might be accommodated uh, within the same ideology as put forward by uh, the Anti-Nationalist Manifesto. So again, it's, a, it's an attempt, um, you know, to create effervescence, uh, which is a precondition for creating collective identity by changing subjects, which can homologically point to the same underlying uh, ideologism, 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 sorry, as criterion for subsumption uh, under a specific um, principle of uh, Bernardo's philosophical system. Uh, it's all these nodal points that are very important in identifying uh, how the actual empirical reality of situated actors reflects the uh, philosophy and the ideology and uh, how this fuzziness consolidates through effervescence and emotional co-belonging because these communities are called, you know, both they're both imaginary, uh, as Anderson said, as well as affective communities. You know, there's an underlying effect or there are some, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of disgruntlement, uh, there are a lot of negative emotions, adverse emotions, experiences that each one is trying to uh, um, um, uh, intermingle with one another. Uh, I guess the background of perhaps different experiences, albeit which may effervescently constitute a, a sense of communitas, a sense of community. So it's very important to see how this change of subjects and this. Uh, what's called in the pragmatics in uh, uh, shifters, what kind of shifters are used when changing subjects. Uh, we tend to differ from oral discourse and uh, oral, this, uh, oral interaction. Again, a massive difference between uh, um, media, uh, between social media discourse and uh, in vivo discourse. 
uh, where these, these shifters sometimes tend to be absent. Uh, it's particularly important to know which shifters are absent by comparing contrast with studies in pragmatics that have been conducted in physical settings, as well as what kind of shifters tend to replace these uh, shifters that are uh, um, present in oral discourse. Uh, generally speaking, social media discourse is considered to be closer to written discourse rather than oral discourse. This is why the concept of interaction has been um, challenged uh, in the uh, computer mediated discourse and living literature uh, because it's more like uh, an interaction between monological subjects uh, that takes place not necessarily uh, in the same spatial temporal, well, in the same spatial temporal contours, uh, meaning that you can interact with the post with a comment that was posted two years ago which uh, challenges uh, the simultaneity of discourse that is a necessary condition for uh, uh, interaction in physical space. Or uh, there might be a special lag, meaning that uh, the one social actor may be uh, situated in a completely different context when interacting with a comment uh, rather than be co-present, uh, for example, in the same place, uh, which is definitely of interaction in physical places. So these different aspects of interacting uh, in social media uh, play a major role, uh, they perform a major role uh, in what, what sort of interaction, uh, in, in how interaction uh, enables um, the consolidation of uh, uh, a sense of collective identity, which is a collective identity that says it's produced through different time lags through different uh, special uh, predicaments and is not necessarily streamlined uh, or um, uh, compressively produced as the case with live demonstrations or with uh, in vivo meetings between the members of a community. Uh, again, these are, these are perhaps more academic and more nuanced aspects uh, that are ever, nevertheless very important in Absolutely. understanding how an ideology shapes in social media and what kind of ideology is this compared to lifestyle ideologies, uh, how it evolves through time, uh, what kind of resources are employed, linguistic and multimodal, for example, videos, pictures, and other paraphernalia and cultural artifacts that are amenable to producing a collective effervescence and a collective sense of identity. Excellent, excellent. A, a quote from the paper, I think, in my mind anyway, sums up your intentions very well. The offered analysis focuses on how the collective identity of the Facebook antinatalist NSMs uh, emerged through an ongoing negotiation of the meaning of this ideology in members' online interactions. It, it is this, this uh, as you call it, negotiation of the meaning of, of antinatalism that is of great interest to me. And I, th I think is a a subtext to this to this um, this podcast that's been sort of all consuming. Where I, I think that the negotiation of what antinatalism means is it permeates all antinatalist spaces. You know, it's not just in this Facebook group. And I think that um, antinatalism means you know there's a kernel of an idea that we all have, but what it is changes from person to person, you know, really quite dramatically. I mean, antinatalists believe antinatalism to be very dramatically different things from one another. Um, and that's, that's been a huge uh, it, 
point of interest in my own research on the, on the topic. Um, in your opinion, are antinatalists negotiating the meaning of our philosophical position in a way that is unusual to how other social movements might be doing so? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, well, I'm not sure whether it's different to other social movements, especially lifestyle movements, which then again to um, um, incorporate uh, quite quite vividly uh, aspects of the discourse strategy of uh, individuation or appropriation. This is uh, definitely a permeating strategy across lifestyle movements. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't necessarily say um, that it's different, okay. but uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely unique in terms of, uh, as you said, to what extent uh, these differences grapple with the philosophical positions or with a fuzzy concept uh, ideologically transmogrified of antinatalism. That is a fuzzy schema of uh, elliptical principles as has been framed, for example, by um, by Eagleton. Uh, as Eagleton said, on the one hand, ideologies are passionate, rhetorical, impelled by some benighted pseudo-religious faith. On the other hand, there are conceptual systems which seek to reconstruct society from the ground up in accordance with some bloodless blueprint. And another important Right. Another important citation for understanding how ideologies work by Vodak. Ideologies are defined as perceptions and opinions about the social and political realities of societies, which aim at truths and generalizations, although they might also contain untruths, half-truths, or unfinished systems of thoughts and beliefs. So it's, you know, there's a lot of confusion. This is why they're called fuzzy schemata. What is a schema? Uh, rather than a concrete representation, an example to understand how the, the, the difference between a schema and a concrete empirical representation is to think of the difference between uh, an office space and a, and, a, and, a, and a chair. When you, you know, when I'm, I'm referring to a chair, we have more or less a more concrete grasp of that object that is uh, that's called chair. When we say office, we have a more abstract representation. For example, for some, they might include a, a PC, a, a desk, a chair, perhaps a plant, a picture, and some of these um, subordinate concepts, they're more central to the formation of the abstract concept, schematic concept of office, whereas others are more peripheral. This is not the case with chair. So if you multiply these abstract schematic concepts of office to the nth dimension, you can understand where concepts such as uh, antinatalism or God or other such abstractions, um, how they become consolidated and solidified as representations through, you know, all sorts of different kinds of pictures, lexemes, uh, elliptical uh, um, sentences and representations. We send different idiosyncratically among the, the linguistic subjects that are their carriers. Uh, in the same fashion, um, uh, the, the, the actual matter of the discussions that's, take, that's taking place in most of these communities, it tends to be uh, ideologically um, 
uh, elaborated rather than uh, philosophical argumentatively oriented. This is why it's not as critical as they tend to endorse, you know, the premises uh, while decontextualize these premises from the actual argumentative contours that spawn them. Uh, that's the difference between ideology and a philosophical system. When you're engaging in philosophical discussion or when you're uh, trying to criticize a philosophical system or part of a system, usually uh, you tend to examine, you know, a fundamental aspects such as whether it includes internal contradictions between earlier parts of the exposition and later parts, whether there are uh, terminological inconsistencies, uh, whether it deviates from previous philosophical positions and in what respects. So this is a matter of, you know, reading philosophically philosophical text. Uh, whereas when you're uh, employing the premises that have been produced through a philosophical text in an ideological manner, you, you, you unhinge them from the philosophical contours and you use them acotentially uh, and more often than not, in, in an emotively laden manner that's trying to give expression to deeply held emotions or disgruntlements rather than reflect the actual meaning of the premises that um, stems from the original text. That's the difference between ideology and, um, and the original philosophy. Of course, as is well known, the same happens with what happened with the Communist Manifesto, you know, the way it was, uh, to be honest, I've never read it, so I'm not going to go into depth about it, and I'm not a communist either. But um, I have I have to say this because uh, uh, this is what is it's a commonplace of the manifesto itself. Its philosophical right. exposition is far removed from the way it was uh, negotiated ideologically and how it gave rise to an entire state that was uh, founded upon its premises. But it's a typical case, and you know it, it shows very vividly in Benadar's case as well. To give you another example, and this is something that I'm not sure whether it has been mentioned in any of your, uh, by any of your previous invitees, but it's definitely a very important uh, aspect in, uh, in terms of uh, philosophical precedence. Benadar's system is not new. Um, right, yes. The same thesis was developed by both Schopenhauer was being graded by uh, as the first philosopher of suicide by many, and Nietzsche, of course, who's for people who study philosophy and first degrees was philosophy, with uh, an orientation towards continental philosophy, right? Nietzschean, Freudian, Derridian, blah blah, post-structuralism. That was um, I don't know, one of my favorite um, you know topics, uh, and, I, and I'm obviously I'm still using you know my all this knowledge that I've gained, gained through different phases in my academic research. And I've deepened uh, in various areas, but uh, I was particularly drawn to continental philosophy because uh, it's the only way to create bridges between uh, sociocultural phenomena and uh, the accounts uh, about this phenomena, uh, rather than analytical philosophy is more like sentence-oriented, which is not very reflective of actual discourse. There's a massive difference. So to cut a long story short, Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer will, 
uh, it's a fundamental of aspect of human existence and and it's not subject dependent it's something for let's say a cosmic will and it's something that works by itself and in itself it animates you know humans it's not something that is consciously motivated by humans who sense the difference from uh, for example cognitive psychological accounts of goal or of uh, subject the human subject being a goal-oriented uh uh, subject in the first place, fundamentally. That was not the case with Schopenhauer. Uh, so uh, this explains in various uh, respects why desire is always incitable and why you can never... Uh, uh, this meets in certain respects also Benaro's claim and premise that however happy you think someone is, no one is happy you know fully happy because this is a fundamental of desire uh it's uh it rekindles itself by itself and you can never you know say that okay i, I fulfill fulfill my desire because it's the very essence of desire to um very kind of uh so schopenhauer's way out of this would be either to commit suicide or to distance oneself from, uh, you know, this uh, view of subjectivity as, as a desiring mechanism, as the Les would say, uh, by through the through what Nietzsche said, the term is the ascetic ideal, that is the ideal of Christianity, uh, that is go out of the desert and speculate uh, all alone uh, about divinity or whatever else as must bring your mind in the desert. Most likely that you're out of food and water, but anyways, for some of me being a ascetic ideal, not for me, but whatever. That was Nietzsche's original perception, and um, yes, through distancing from the vagaries that uh, plague human existence, uh, we might become uh, more self-conscious about the fact that we're never uh, free from desire and our uh, desire. Because it's so overwhelming, the other the only way to satiate it would be to end our lives, which uh, pretty much consolidates in a crude fashion Schopenhauer's position. Um, of course, um, there are other you know the other ways of reading the term suffering that uh, Ben Adler is using for this uh, human condition, uh, which, to my understanding, is and also wrote this in my paper on Anthony Analyst. Is very close to the originary scene and to the fall of man, you know, the Christian notion of the fall of man from a uh, paradisal space, utopian space. Uh, it's not, Bernard is not using uh, a physiological term like pain. There's a massive difference between pain and suffering. Suffering is a, an emotionally elaborated term of, uh, that, that refers to another line condition but it's, it's, it's a psychological inner elaboration of a stimulus. It's not a stimulus as such. So, for example, when you're saying that uh, there's, uh, this person's in pain because he has lost a leg, uh, you don't sympathize with his pain. You sympathize with the expression of his pain, which is a psychological elaboration of the pain, uh, which is called suffering. So if the fundamental condition, according to Christianity, is to suffer because you have you know, fallen from an originary condition of fullness 
utopia condition of fullness, then uh, definitely uh, the only way out would be to seize your life or to never have come into life because life is a priori and condition to be suffering. So to my, to my understanding, Bernardo is a very good Christian and a very, very devout Christian as well. Very devout Christian, uh, just like Schopenhauer uh, in certain respects, although you know his works have been read through Hinduism and Buddhist philosophy, is definitely a very good Christian as well, an apologetic for suicide, which is the only way of you know, uh, putting an end to uh, a preconditioning suffering that is part and parcel of accepting this doctrine. Well, I, I, I would have to, there's so much to unpack there. I don't, I don't know that we'll get, we'll get to all of it, but I mean, I, I think the point is to prevent the existence of more of it. You're not, there's no mandate to then go kill yourself. Um, I don't think that that's the prescription at all, really. It's that just stop creating more, more babies, basically. I mean, that's, that's the antinatalist conclusion. You're not under some, uh, it's really not about ending your own suffering. It's, it's, it's doing something to present, prevent the existence of more of it. Well, um, if you put it this way, I mean, Bernardo is actually more, um, more insistent that when he's talking about uh, ending one suffering or about uh, it would have been better if we had never been born, He's including his own existence as well. Sure, so, that's that's true. But I think I think it has more to do with you know he's trying to present prevent the Benatars of the future, so to speak. I mean he can he can. I mean I, I am also a right to die advocate. I believe you know, and I and Benatar is as well. I mean I certainly think both of us would would agree that people should have the right to end their existences at the time of their choosing. So that's a a whole separate a topic. But I think that the the, where he's trying to get people to, to go is to not procreate. It comes back to procreation, not suicide. So, yeah. Um, philosophically and sophistically, rather, you know, it's very easy to sophistically reverse this argument and, you know, bring it back to his head. Because when someone says it's better to have never been born, and if one includes one's own existence, then uh, it leads, you know, these two syllogies, the supremacies, lead to the conclusion that uh, I, I, I should commit suicide or I should die or there's no point in, you know, living because life is suffering. I include my own existence in this life. So there's no point in living. But, but it can mean that. Living, it can mean that. But, well, but philosophically that's... and sophistically, to my understanding, it's in one way, you know, it's, there's, there's no alternatives. Like, if you accept this as a, as a foundational premise, you're led, you're bound to accept as uh, non-negotiable the option of, not the option, the um, necessity of committing suicide. It's a necessity to commit suicide. It's not an option. I, I understand. Yeah, I understand yeah. what you're saying. I don't think that's what it means to be an antinatalist, though. Basically, antinatalism to me, and I think to many antinatalists, is a rejection of, of DNA, basically. Like we're caught up in this thing that just creates, keeps on creating more people, more Benatars, more Amandas, more Georges. 
and we can see that people will exist in the future. So again, it's not it's not necessarily about our our existence right now, but the people that will exist and preventing their suffering in the future if we can understand that we're suffering now. So it 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 definitely um, makes what I would consider like a, like the right to die more clear. I mean, once we become antinatalists, it definitely makes uh, euthanasia a much more um, in focus um, part of piece of, of the premise, I suppose. But it's not it's not what it's not really where antinatalists are driven. It's it's in the prevention of life. Yes, well, there are always mild and harsher ways. Uh, of reading philosophical theories, uh, this especially political theories as well, that may be a milder way of um, reframing Bernardo's arguments, although they're, to my understanding, they're much more talkative and much more straight and more much more uh, vertical in terms of the interpretive scope. Uh, this is why uh, uh, I'm trying to consolidate his premises, his foundational premises into 10, where in order to show that it's clear, for example, when it says coming into existence is always a harm. So if, and always is italicized as well, and which means that he's uh, placing a particular emphasis to this um, modifier. This is an adverbial modifier, uh, which precludes any potential misinterpretation or the addition of any interpretations in a milder form. Uh, it's a more all-inclusive argument as regards the potential scope of its application. And this is why he's italicizing this um, adverbial pre-modifier. It is always a bad thing. It's always a harm. So if it's always a harm coming into existence, uh, this uh, should not be interpreted in temporal terms, that is, whether the, it is our existence now or some existence in the future. It refers to all existence, regardless of its temporal situatedness. In this respect, I don't think that at least the original exposition of the philosophical theory leaves much scope for doubt as regards whether uh, this is something that applies to future generations or this is something that applies to all humans exist, to all human existence as of its inception. Well, I think there are many antinatalists that, that would agree with you. And, and, and that's sort of um, led to um, a, a tertiary or tangential or related topic of pro-mortalism, that antinatalism leads to pro-mortalism, we should end our lives. And many antinatalists are pro-mortalists and, and some are very, very much not and, and reject that entirely. Um, it's sort of, um, you know, the, the reaction that that antinatalists most commonly receive to our philosophical position is why don't you just go kill yourself? And the exactly. point, right. And the well, point, the point that antinatalists make to that is that once you are alive, you have an interest in existing. You become addicted to 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 living essentially. Now you can as an individual become unaddicted. And then and again I believe everybody should have the right to end their own lives. But to be an antinatalist doesn't necessitate that 
And it's not the focus of what antinatalism, antinatalists are trying to do. We're trying to prevent the existence of more life, not what we do with our own existence and our own pain. It well, can be, but it's not, it's not, the, it's not the true focus. Uh, it's, it's, I'm just trying to um, point out that particular part in my article uh, where I'm discussing this, uh, this issue uh, about a latent or um, latent elitism. For example, what do you say? If we accept this, then you know that we should we should uh, also accept that there are two groups of people. There are people who merit living. Of course, if if we accept this premise, then we negate a foundational premise of antinatalism. And there are people who merit being. Uh, becoming extinct and this begs a further question and it's definitely bound to lead to an infinite regression uh, against whose criteria uh, you determine who belongs to which group because if it's not a matter to be decided by the first group who are self-professed to come across uh, as those who can um, pass decisions about who can live or, or who should live or who should die, and I guess what's criteria, which criteria, then there must be another group that must be responsible for conferring these uh, judgments. Uh, so if this is the case, then it's going to, it's bound to lead to an infinite regression, you know, which is the group and which are these people who, you know, can safeguard or uh, deny existence. Uh, this is why there's, a, and I found this quite um, to be a recurrent phenomenon in some of the comments that were posted in the analyst community. Uh, exactly what you said, that uh, you know, we believe, some, some of them believe that uh, definitely, you know, some people do not marry uh, procreating or they should not leave, but they live out themselves outside of the picture, which no one Bernardo did. So in a sense, they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're suffused with an elitist uh, um, sentiment, an elitist collective sentiment uh, that legitimates them in a, in a self-professed fashion to pass judgments about others by excluding themselves. And this is quite a recurrent phenomenon in the community, which of course has nothing to do with Bernardo because Bernardo included himself in those who should never have been born, which again leads uh, uh, one-sidedly uh, and in one-way fashion uh, to the conclusion that um, you should cease to exist because you, if you're not supposed to come into existence and if existence is harmful uh, without any qualification, existence per se as such, then, you know, continue to exist is pointless. But I, I don't think that it, I, I mean, you do make a comment at one point in your paper that, you know, um, you, were, you were reacting to something that a commenter had said about the difference between like misanthropic antinatalism and, and philanthropic antinatalism. And you made a comment saying that, you know, there wasn't, for Benatar, there wasn't all these variations of what an antinatalist can be. And that is incorrect as far as, as my understanding of Benatar 
goes. I mean, there is a, a real recognition that antinatalism can, antinatalists can hold this, um, that antinatalism is, 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 is in some respects very amorphous. Um, in part because of another thing that you said that yes, it's, this doesn't exactly originate from Benatar. Antinatalism does have this very, very long history that doesn't even begin with, with Schopenhauer. Um, it's, a, it's an ancient idea and so, and people come to it naturally as well, even without, the, uh, without any academia involved. What, what I was trying to say is that um, uh, in the community there were, um, there were very clear vestiges of deviating from Benatar, as you yeah. correctly said. Yeah. And this is um, quite expectedly so because all of these ideologies or, or this pseudo-philosophical system, because my understanding this is pseudo-philosophy, it's an empirical philosophy which might as well, you know, it's, it's, it's premised on uh, um, abstractions upon abstraction upon abstraction, which is not really backed by uh, data for example, uh, Bernardo is hardly ever using any data when he's backing his claims, or he's uh, he's you know he's uh, lapsing in all sorts of, of um, logical fallacies as regards uh, slippery slopes, uh, as regards uh, the uh, catapulting of uh, singular examples into exemplars, uh, which is the Derridian uh, what Derrida defines uh, the, uh, the the problem of exemplarity. To what extent an example uh, may exemplify the entire set of instances where it is instantiated, either uh, as we know it uh, by now or counterfactually as it might have been instantiated in all possible worlds, and this may be extended ad infinitum as an argument. Um, uh, Benaro is hardly ever drawing. Um, concrete examples. And when he does, he's using them in a rhetorical fashion, uh, uh, again, by um, obliterating the dividing line between example and exemplar, uh, in the same manner that, uh, you know, popular media portray a singular social actor on the camera uh, who confer their opinion about an event, and they're portraying this as, you know, the voice of the people, which is uh, a typical, uh, you know, logical fallacy yet uh, that is legitimated through uh, the media portrayal of social cultural phenomena uh, as um, uh, uh, um, a valid way of uh, speaking. So um, um, there are all sorts of you know, problems with Benaro's exposition uh, of his uh, theory in terms of um, where he's coming from, but it's very clear that the way he's presenting it is in a very strict manner and that any uh, milder forms of uh, putting forward his arguments would co constitute deviations from Bernardo. Of course, it doesn't you know, mean that you, you, can do, you don't have the right to do this, but uh, perhaps you should you know, qualify this as a milder form uh, of anti-natalism so that everybody's in line. Uh, again, this is a matter of appropriating, as I said, it's a matter of discursive strategy, uh, the discursive strategy that's adopted by its social actor in terms of appropriating an ideology, making it one's own, cutting it into one's own measures, and then, you know, uh, presenting it in a manner that suits oneself. Uh, because it's definitely, you know, better to exclude oneself from its premise 
from the premise that um, uh, existence is not uh, worthwhile rather than uh, and transposing it to somebody else rather than making one part of this problem. Uh, but again, this deviates from definitely deviates from Bernardo's uh, original standpoint. Out of curiosity, George, have you um, been in contact with Benatar at all? Do you know if he by chance has read your paper and had any thoughts about it? No, not at all. Not okay. at all. That would be very Never interesting. I, I would, I would, I would really love to, you know, hear hear what he what he thinks about that. Um, that, that that might be an interesting thing to have happen at some point. Um, yeah, as I, well, as I said, the original purpose of my paper, at least this one, was not it was not philosophical in essence. Right. Uh, although yeah. I, I might be, you know, keen on writing another more philosophical oriented paper sure. that is grappling with specific arguments, and there ha- there's quite excessive literature in, in, to that end, as far as I'm aware. Uh, the purpose of my paper was precisely to pinpoint these three strata of uh, these three layers of uh, transformation from philosophical system to ideology, and then to concrete empirical reality of the um, people who endorse this um, ideology in a fuzzy manner and who make it part of their uh, daily existence and quite quite a core part as well, uh, and especially in a social medium like Facebook. So, you know, the purpose of my paper was very, very specific, and the analysis were very narrowly oriented uh, towards meeting these research objectives rather than tackling, uh, in general, the validity or the soundness of Benaro's uh, right. philosophical system. This way, I only allocated one section uh, in scrutinizing uh, Benaro's philosophical system from a purely philosophical point of view, as well as uh, opted for, you know, um, putting all this material in a, that, that's addressing Benaro's system from a more macro-cultural perspective as an appendix rather than, you know, uh, intermingling it with the core of my analysis. Yes, I, absolutely. That's a very important point that, I mean, the point of your paper was not a philosophical analysis. I'd be very, I mean, I'm, I hope that you do end up writing um, a detailed philosophical analysis. That'd be very interesting. Um, incidentally, I, 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 um, I think you might uh, be very interested in uh, the paper on antinatalism that was written, by, actually, I think he has two, but I think they're similar, I can't remember offhand, uh, by Christopher Belshaw, because I think he mm-hmm. would agree with you that, that, that uh, Benatar implies pro-mortalism and that might be an interesting uh thing to to see you react to at some point um i I know this may seem a bit tangential but i do think it relates well to your to your research um outside of wikipedia the word antinatalism is still not included or defined by any known dictionary in the world in any language on top of that the wikipedia definition keeps on getting reworded and rephrased which again i i think speaks volumes to your claim that antinatalists are constantly like sort of negotiating the meaning of what of antinatalism. The first sentence of the Wikipedia definition used to be a philosophical position that assigns a negative value to birth. Um, that was later changed to include a philosophical position and social movement that assigns a negative value to birth. But the social movement edition was extremely controversial and made a lot of antinatalists very angry. Uh, Many antinatalists do not like any insinuation that we are a social movement at all, which I'm curious to know your thoughts on, but let me just uh, go on real quick. 
Uh, and now it seems the definition has changed entirely again to read antinatalism or anti-hyphenatalism is the ethical view that negatively values procreation. So uh, George, I'm wondering how you feel uh, personally how antinatalism should be defined if you have any um, thoughts on this on this shifting definition that keeps happening. Um, mm -hmm. And also if you have any thoughts about the hesitance of some antinatalists to identify as a social movement. Right. Um, well, first of all, as far as I can um, understand from what you said, the first and the third uh, reframing uh, are complementary aspects because uh, it is a moral system. Well, it's, it's a moral philosophy. Strictly speaking, um, this uh, monograph would fall under the uh, discipline of moral philosophy. So it is an ethical system. Uh, uh, so in this respect, it, the third definition, the third reframing complements the first one uh, quite neatly. I cannot see any dissonance in this respect. Uh, if the um, problem emerges between the first and the second definition, the second reframing, um, which is the uh, addition of the social movement in, uh, to the definition, and, and, if, and if this causes um, reactions and disgruntlement by some of the community members, then again, this should, should, you know, might be um, negotiated by defining what we, you know, what they mean by social movement. This is why I drew a distinction, uh, which is quite customary distinction uh, in cultural sociology, uh, which is one of the disciplines that I drew uh, for um, writing this paper and for demarcating what I mean by uh, social movement, there's a major difference between traditional social movements and new social movements. And these differences I'm exploring and um, uh, outlining in five main points, I think, as far as I remember in this paper. Um, let me quickly go through these differences because that might be, that might resolve some of, of these misunderstandings and some of these self-perceptions on behalf of okay. anti-mentalists. Um, now, from a cultural point of view, new social movements are concerned with fostering solidarity among members, the creation of collective identity, and the engagement in game-changing activism. However, new social movements are more lifestyle-oriented, encompassing people's everyday practices, tastes, conception habits, leisure activities, modes of speech and dress, while reflecting and being ratified on lifestyle ideologies such as veganism, slow food, green living. Although such lifestyle-oriented new social movements do aim at challenging dominant cultural values and ideologies, usually they do not feature aspects that are definitive of political struggles, such as protests and aggressive forms of political activism. So perhaps, you know, the way, the reason why people are reacting uh, when they're um, their identities accommodated uh, under the rubric of a social movement is because they operate with a schema of a social movement as a, um, a challenging form against a dominant set of values, which per perhaps is not something that they're sharing or that they're indoors. Uh, you know, they endorse them themselves um, as more of a lifestyle ideology, uh, perhaps a, a passing time fancy or notice being as integral to their existence as the original exposition of the philosophical movement says. 
Uh, and again, the difference between a, a new social movement and a traditional social movement uh, concerns the um, concerns uh, eligibility criteria. Uh, traditional social movements will probably be screened uh, by the head of a movement or someone who's uh, appointed to a position of screening in order to recruit, you know, rec um, the movement member. Whereas in new social movements, especially social movements, you can easily opt in and opt out of the community with a single click. Yeah, you can join in and join out. So there, you know, the affiliations that are created between the community members are not as strict as uh, the traditional concept of social movement resonates. Uh, so I can see to what extent uh, when, you know, well, and, 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 and in certain aspects, there's definitely an issue with uh, big data analytics and the way profiling is, uh, you know, practiced by social media when they're trying to impose, you know, specific labels on you based on your surfing habits or your shares and clicks, which may be, you know, as fancy as ephemeral and, or, and not at all as being reflective of either latent personality traits or of, you know, very well thought out uh, actions. You know, it's, you know, it's passing time. It's like famous Facebook friends. Everybody knows that, you know, all these three people that you have as friends in your face, on your Facebook page, most likely you don't know and you've never made 2,999 of them. Perhaps you know one, your mom or, you know, whatever, <laughs> but not the rest. So it's exactly the same with big data analytics. It's a massive fallacy. Not only it's unethical, that's a very tip of the iceberg, the ethical part. It's absolutely fallacious and ridiculous. You know, it's ludicrous. And I'm, I'm not really sure whether we should be talking, even talking about it, not practicing it, you know, like uh, actually legitimating this sort of analytics for conferring, uh, for profiling purposes. So yes, by the same token, you know, uh, people, should have every right to react to being labeled as uh, something that they're not fully endorse or they don't fully understand, but which they might be drawn into in the same fashion they would be drawn situationally to a clubbing event or, uh, you know, to any sort of event. I mean, uh, um, you know, the, you have every right to consider, that's what I keep saying, you know, there's a, a, a compulsion to confess uh, a ubiquitous compulsion to confess and an identificatory logic uh, that have been taking root over the public morse uh, over the past two decades, uh, which have nothing to do with any possible precedent uh, as regards theories of selfhood and how they have been expressed in different disciplines from philosophy to sociology to political theory, you know, the, the simplest example is, you know, difference between a core self and a situational self. Uh, and, you know, it's like claiming that because you're going to swear somebody who's invading your property, you're a swearing person. It's that sort of fallacies and paralogisms to which this confessional culture is leading to. So by the same token, people, you know, are starting to uh, react because this sort of, let's say, uh, representational silos and this representational death camping uh, is suffocating them. So, you know, you don't have the right to label the, me as an analyst, 
because yes, I may agree with some part of it, but you know, I'm not really that you know committed, or it's not a cause because it's not a traditional sort of movement. For example, a political movement uh, that don't um, conceptualize it as a cause-related uh, social movement. Uh, it's more like you know a way of expressing along others who may sharing in the same fuzzy schematic fashion some of the problems that they have been encountering with some more, let's say, a more mundane way of rendering uh, a philosophical system, which of course has completely different orientation and premises. So um, to my understanding, uh, they should better, they should rather omit the, uh, the term social movement. Um, okay. But perhaps rephrase it as a new social movement uh, uh, in order to reflect this uh, let's say, very nuanced differentiation between what it meant to be a social movement, let's say, during the industrialization uh, era and what it has come to connote and designate uh, in a post-industrialized, uh, post-modern, fast-food ideological predicament. Fascinating thoughts all around. Thank you so much for that, uh, George. I mean, related to the one of the quotes from your paper that I was quite drawn to is, moreover, the antinatalist community per se is more akin to an affective and imaginary one. Some might be surprised to hear that I actually do agree with you there. I, I, I don't I, I don't think that remains entirely true today. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. But at the time the paper was written, let's say uh, 2017, 2019, I do think you were very correct. Um, your paper, I think, was written at a very interesting time in the development of the antinatalist community, because later that same uh, year, 2019, um, antinatalist activism actually started to leave the barriers of social media and the internet. And you saw the arrival of things more akin to traditional uh, activism, like street outreach, meetups, and even the formation of um, I don't, I don't know, like, let's call them proto NGOs, you know, stuff like um, Child Free India, Stop Having Kids, which came a little later, Antinatalism International, which is uh, my collective, um, and the AAJP, which is the Association of Anti-Procreationalism in Japan. Um, what are your thoughts um, if, if, if on this evolution in antinatalism, if, if, we, if we can call it that? And in your mind, does this make the, the antinatalist community more real, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Less imaginary. Yeah. Right. Um, well, it's not going to get less imaginary if people stretch the logical uh, outcomes of these basic premises to their farthest extremes. Okay. which is what it sounds like, the way you're describing it. Um, as I said, you know, committing suicide or killing any, any, anyone, including oneself, is perfectly legitimated uh, based on the basic premises of this system. This is very clear to my understanding. You know, there's no point in arguing that uh, if you endorse it and if this uh, philosophical system uh, becomes legitimated, you have every right to kill anybody else, anyone else, including yourself. It's very clear. So, you know, whatever, let's say, movement or ramification develops from its premises uh, is um, a typical way of extending um, a philosophical string uh, of syllogisms to the farthest extremes. It's neither the first nor the last, you know, instance 
where such a, an extension takes place. And it's very usual uh, for, in terms of legitimating, especially ethical theories, to be stretching uh, premises to the farthest extremes. For example, um, Habermas ethical system, which is a, an attempt to salvage Kantian um, rationalism, uh, where reason presides as the ultimate court of appeal over every uh, instance of empirical reality and to transpose this kind of transcendental function of reason in a communitarian setting of reasonable subjects, which is a completely different thing because when you transpose a disinterested notion of reason to a naturally pragmatic uh, dimension that has to do with how different subjects define their rationality in an instrumentalist fashion within a communitarian setting, then you can get all sorts of legitimations of rationality, including, for example, um, whoever doesn't use aromatic garbage bags should not be a member of our community. And this is definitely a rational decision because it has been made within the communitarian settings of us who preside over you know, this community as, as reasonable and rational uh, social actors. You see these sorts of transpositions, which are definitely uh, legitimate from a philosophical point of view, yet, uh, you know, they tend to, you know, at their very extremes, they tend to be tinged with all sorts of ludicrous and fanciful statements, decisions, and uh, concrete manifestations. I, I, I'm going to kind of j jump ahead a little bit. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure how, how best to proceed with um, uh, going forward with, with you detailing your findings of this study, um, but I'm, I'm very interested in hearing about that, yeah. Well, we talked about this discourse strategies, uh, I think to some extent, uh, which is, uh, as I said, the nodal point uh, between the, um, transforming ideology into a, an individuated empirical reality. Now, the third finding in my research, which I think is equally important, and it's uh, actually, uh, it, it actually confirms the latent hypothesis that I developed uh, during the initial stages of the research, that is uh, the fact that uh, the collective identity of a new social movement is more a case of emotive effervescence rather than uh, you know, a, a very a, a rational process of argumentation about the basic premises of an ideology and its underlying philosophy. Uh, this came through very, very vividly uh, while analyzing the uh, posts, the comments that were sent and the interaction among the members of the Indianapolis community on Facebook. Um, for example, when people, you know, some of the comments that uh, stood out uh, concerned misanthropy. And in this case, he said, uh, you know, some commentators, as I'm writing, appear to be effective as schism in the seamless fabric of the ideology by adopting not only a milder antinatalist stance, but also by negating the underlying ideal together which is a, you know, a more advanced you know, stage compared to what we have been discussing earlier. And I quote, depends, and this is a, a verbative quotation from one of the participants, depends on the antinatalist branch. Misanthropic, sure, I guess, 
but most of the Netherlands assign a negative value to birth due to compassion, so they want to help others. So again, you know, it's a way of providing a nuance that fits one's worldview that may not have been necessarily, and definitely has not been part of the initial philosophical system. Because when, you know, when Benadro said, uh, developed this uh, uh, absolute uh, as a sentence that is always harmful, then, you know, this always, this pre-modifier um, does not leave, leave a great scope or interpretive space for maneuvering as regards providing more nuanced interpretations, whether it's uh, because you're compassionate towards others or because you're a misanthropic and don't like others. So you see, it's a way of, you know, um, uh, negotiating the original philosophy and trying to bring it uh, to the level of one, one's own latent axiology, which is not necessarily, which not necessarily um, in line with the philosophy. And that's the mediating, this is where uh, um, ideology comes into place. And this is where a philosophy becomes uh, uh, transformed into ideology. That is a set of fuzzy schemata, fuzzy premises, which inform and become malleably um, the, the, um, uh, manipulated by others uh, in ways that uh, are definitely may not have been intended in the original philosophical exposition. Uh, I think this is the major finding uh, from this empirical research. The fact that, um, because you know, people are talking about ideologies all the time and you know, what is your ideology or what is your philosophy and so on and so forth. It's very important to understand uh, through a systematic reading of sociocultural phenomena. And this is what is afforded by discourse analysis and semiotics in many respects. And of course, by using a specific methodological avenues, academically credible, valid, and reliable, and software like Atlas TR or, or InVivo, where you can uh, we have the ability to quantify uh, data rather than you know point out qualitatively uh, some aspects of it. Uh, it comes it comes forth uh, very concretely and very reliably, so that these communities are uh, edified or uh, on a public sentiment. Uh, that is driven through effervescence. Uh, it's you know it's, it's exactly the same effect as ordinary chit chat, which Heidegger you know tagged as inauthentic, as me design as being uh, you know among us. You know it's always it's it's a way of uh, attesting to the relational value of communication rather than trying to uh, affirm or not the truth value behind uh, locutions. Uh, and this relational turn uh, to communication has been prevalent uh, over the past uh, 30 years. Uh, I reached the same conclusion in the paper that I wrote about um, the ice bucket challenge. Uh, again, it's a very uh, vivid way of uh, exemplifying the relation, the sheerly relational value of communication because there is absolutely no verbal content, no argumentation. It's just an emulation and a viral and a viral passing over uh, yeah. of uh, a specific sketch uh, that's uh, yet that is capable of uh, drawing uh, strong bonds uh, 
between politicians, between famous personas, and which means that it is this mode of communicating is legitimated because it is enacted by intermediaries of cultural production. And in the same fashion, the more popular personas uh, are uh, adopting anti-natalists. For example, Robert Smith of The Cure was an example of a famous uh, artist who has endorsed anti-natalists. Uh, um, it's a way of, let's say, legitimating uh, informally uh, a philosophical perspective, yet which is taking root in uh, a, a more much fuzzier manner than was originally intended. I think right. that's the major takeout, and it's very important for for uh, appreciating the value of social sciences and academic research in general uh, against um, a, a, a broader audience, um, because you know it's otherwise you don't have a, a way of accounting. Uh, for you know all these concrete manifestations, you just uh, adopt what you see critically. So it's a matter of cultivating you know self awareness and become you know self uh, more critical about what you see around you. Uh, as a plain person who's not necessarily a social researcher or a scientist uh, about how to analyze phenomena and how to become more self aware about what you're subscribing to. Yeah, uh, fascinating, George. Thank you so much for that. I, are you still a part of, of this Facebook group um, since you wrote your paper? Do you continue to follow it? And if so, do you have any thoughts on how it's changed since that time, if, if at all? No, I have to doubt uh, as soon as I finish my research, because uh, the the only way I was uh, I subscribed was in order to, uh, you know, try to understand exactly this difference between philosophy and ideology right. and us negotiating between members. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm the only, uh, I was drawn into it in the same manner that I have been uh, attracted to other social cultural phenomena uh, from a point of view of uh, my ongoing academic research. Right, right, of course. Um, has the paper received much, any feedback from the antinatalist community that you can talk about? Um, and, and has the, and you, but in, you have said in the, uh, earlier in this interview that it has received uh, a, a lot of uh, attention outside of the community, which is very interesting. Well, a, a lot, of, well, in, in proportion to the, the um, in pro, a lot in proportion to how much research it has attracted from academic researchers, not in absolute numbers, uh, but I'm not, I'm not aware of how and if it has been uh, read by actual analysts or members of this community and what their feedback might be. Uh, but again, you know, this, this is a major issue as regards the way you analyze and you represent a social cultural phenomenon and to what extent uh, the actual participants uh, may agree or disagree. There is a strand of um, academic researchers who say that they're, they're more uh, affiliated with a realist, uh, with a social realist camp, who say that uh, if the actual participants do not agree with your analysis, that it's not a valid analysis. I completely disagree with this approach, hundred yeah, percent. Uh, and you know, uh, it's just like saying that uh, you're a physicist or a chemist, and uh, your perception of how this compound works should be the same 
uh, as a lay person. Not at all. I don't have Absolutely. a clue about physics, to be honest. And I, I, my knowledge of how a phenomenon works otherwise uh, in any other manner than I perceive it intuitively uh, has nothing to do with the scientific approach that may be applied by a researcher. I 100% agree. I mean, you spoke a little bit about perhaps at some point wanting to revisit uh, the, the philosophy itself and perhaps writing another paper about the philosophy. Do you have any inclination uh, on continuing this research um, at, at some point in time? Well, um, not at this point, unless, of course, somebody approached me with a generous offer, which I, uh, I might be inclined to accept. Uh, but uh, as it goes, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, self-motivated inclination to continue to continue delving into this phenomenon, not at this stage. I mean, I have a very busy pipeline, uh, which of course includes other social cultural phenomena as well. This definitely does not deny the uh, sheer interest and the, as you said, the transmutations of this uh, philosophy and its ideological ramifications and its empirical ramifications as well, which have been involving in quite a uh, extreme and accentuated. Uh, um, directions, uh, but again, you know, I uh, cannot tackle everything. Uh, I'm a finite being and I have two hands. Still, thankfully, <laughs> I might have one, but <laughs> you never know. Anyways, yes, and that's not part of my uh, short-term intention. Yeah, no, you're a very, you're a very, very busy man. So many projects, and uh, which it's it's really quite extraordinary. Um, it's been a pleasure to uh, to you know go through your web repertoire. I haven't got a chance to read everything, of course, uh, but yes, you're very, very prolific. Um, you've spoken a little bit, a little piece of this already, but I mean, what are your future plans? What are you? What are you, what are some of what you're working on right now? What can we expect, and how can people um, find you and and continue to support your work? Right now, uh, short term, I. I'm preparing for a syllabus that I'll be delivering um, here in Athens between February and May on branding, brand equity, and integrated marketing communications. It's more typical, you know, a marketing course, not very uh, social scientific uh, oriented uh, in, in affiliation with the University of West London, which is represented by a local college. And this is something that uh, one of the projects I'm working right now. It's, uh, it's get, well, getting um, absorbing a lot of my time. Uh, at the same time, I'm trying to finish the editing of the forthcoming book, the collective volume, with the participation of uh, prominent discourse analysts and semioticians from all over the world. Uh, that is called Advances in Brand Semiotics and Discourse Analysis. Hopefully, it will be published towards the end. Uh, by um, Vernon Press, who already uh, we have a contract. It's a very nice team, and I will be glad to discuss with you uh, some of the contents if they're with any of your interests, current or future. So yes, these are the two major projects, and of course, I'm continuing the editing the International Journal of Market Semiotics and Discourse Analysis. Uh, we have a lot of submissions. And we're trying to present a lot of uh, new uh, areas of uh, research in the, in the disciplinary research between marketing, semiotics, and discourse analysis. The good news about marketing is that it also has a social mission. Uh, there is a strand that's called transformative marketing and the critical marketing and cultural consumer research, uh, from my perspective, uh, adopts a pan-consumptivist approach. This is why 
uh, we're not talking about just about consuming products or services, but also about ideologies as well. Consumer ideologies is a major part in cultural sociology and in cross-pollination uh, with marketing theory and practice. Uh, it may it may you know lead to very uh, useful areas both for policymakers, but as I said, first and foremost, you know for all of us as ordinary consumers of ideologies uh, and belief systems in our everyday existence. This is a very uh, important and fruitful way of becoming self-aware and self-knowledgeable of what we have been indoctrinated into, what kind of beliefs we have, you know, uh, latent in our brains, hardwired in our brains, and how we can become more critical, perhaps, about them um, in an attempt to, uh, let's say, find something that is more closer to what we're looking for, what we're aiming at, and hopefully uh, we don't have to die uh, on the way to Epiphany. <laughs> so well, yes, that's, that's it from me uh, for today's session, Amanda. I would like to thank you very much for inviting me in this fabulous uh, podcast that you're uh, managing. And you have been doing a great work up until now. I watched some of your previous uh, episodes with, uh, with your guests, which were great interest, and I wish you all the best going forward and i will be here if you need me again i'll be more than glad to share my opinions and hopefully more uh informed uh ways of addressing some of these issues wonderful george thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor speaking with you today thank you so much for being a guest on the exploring antinatalism podcast i really you know whatever disagreements we may have about this or that uh philosophically i mean i think you have given the antinatalist community an absolutely indispensably important uh you know research uh, into into what we are and how we're behaving um and how we're existing and um yeah it's been it's been uh, it's really been incredible to hear your thoughts on everything so once again just thank you so much for your time today and uh, this has really been wonderful thank you again great please see the links below to find both versions of mr rosaletos's paper on antinatalism as well as many other links where you can find his other projects and essays thank you for listening to the exploring antinatalism podcast this has been Amanda Oldfan Sukunik. You can find me on the YouTube channel Antinatal Wolf. Keep up with my daily antinatalist news updates at Antinatal News on Twitter. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, SoundCloud, RSS Feed, Amazon.com, and so many other platforms. You can email me at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com, website designed by Visions Noirs. Please follow Visions Noirs at www.bionoir.com and also follow him on Instagram. Logo art by The Incredible Life Sucks. Please subscribe to him on YouTube, and if you would like to perhaps check out his merch, including Exploring Antinatalism podcast t-shirts, you can go check out his Etsy page at www.etsy.com slash shop slash Life Sucks Publishing. Music was written by the amazing I Doubt It. Please subscribe to him on YouTube and check out our collaborative project along with our dear friend Ethel WV, The Right to No Longer Exist, which includes the podcast, The Right to No Longer Exist, A Right to Die podcast. All the best, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.